Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After Jesus hung on the cross for multiple hours, he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished, which is what I want to scream today as we finish Genesis. It's, it's been a long journey as we've been going through this book. This, this book has covered almost everything that you can think of, which is a great way to start when you're writing the most uh, well-published book in the history of the world. It has quite a wide coverage. Um, we've gone from everything from creation to the fall, from the gift of sex to sexual abuse, from the Sabbath to the Nephilim, whoever those guys are. And uh, if you've been with us throughout the entire journey, just I, I want to applaud you, okay? Um, it's, it's been a, a year that we've been going through Genesis, and today we are concluding it, even though we're looking at some of these chapters 46 through 49 today. We did chapters 45 and 50 last week because we're kind of looking at some of the themes a little separately here at the very end. But today as we're wrapping things up, what we're doing is we're looking at the death of Jacob. And what a fitting way for us to end the book of Genesis as we consider death, as we consider the end of our own lives and the end of the patriarch's life. I realized that a large part of the job of pastors is to prepare people for death. Um, when you go to seminary, it's actually you take classes where you are taught how to officiate funerals. And so far, that is one of the few classes I have not used as a pastor. Praise God. Uh, one of the joys of getting to preach here at, for our church uh, in Somerville is we're, we're a five-year-old church plant. And who's going to join a church plant? But usually younger people, transient people. Who are transient people? But usually younger people. And uh, you're not going to pick up a lot of 80-year-old grandmas at, at a church plant, although I would love to. If you're watching online, please come in. Be our grandmother. We, we need this. Uh, we, we need the grandparents in our church. And so we're, we're longing for that. But so far, um, we don't have very many people who are advanced in age, as Abraham so eloquently put it with his wife, Sarah. And we don't have many people who have severely declining health. And so my opportunities to preach funerals have been rare. And in fact, I would just say that for most of us, we live a pretty insulated life from death. We don't think about death very often. Most of us feel pretty decent uh, each day. We're not considering our own mortality. Over the past five years that I've been the pastor here, I've officiated at least 10 weddings and zero funerals, countless baby dedications. I mean, seriously, I have no idea how many baby dedications we've had over the past five years and zero funerals. 
a number of baptisms, new life in Christ, and zero funerals. We just live this life where it's, it's insulated. We don't consider it. And even the way that our modern society has structured itself, we try to keep ourselves distant from aging and distant from death. In fact, as, as people enter their last years, oftentimes they're not with family. They are with people who specialize in dealing with end-of-life issues. And so, friends, in a world so insulated from death, it is my job to remind you that you are going to die. And that day is sooner than any of us realize. I know we all like to imagine that we're going to live a very long life. The average age of death in the United States is 77 years old, which to me does not feel that old. Uh, I'm like, at least 80s, come on, you know? And most of us imagine, if you do consider your own death, you imagine dying at a ripe old age in your 80s. But the reality is some of us will make it that long and some of us will not in this room. Some of us will not make it that long. And so don't wait until the very end to consider death and what that means for you. You are not indestructible. You will die. Now, trust me, I'm not sitting at home praying that any of you die, okay? I don't want to officiate funerals, but I will, I'm sure, one day. I hope so. I hope to live life long enough to where I get that opportunity. Friends, growing old is not a given. Today, what I want to do as we look at these last three chapters of Genesis is consider Jacob's priorities as he entered the end of his life and what we can learn from Jacob about preparing to die. It's a really feel-good sermon this morning, okay? Um, but we're, we're here, and it's for the God's glory. So to pick up our story, um, we've been going through the narrative of Joseph for, for weeks and weeks, what well, feels like years and years. Um, for weeks and weeks, we've been going through the narrative of Joseph, and uh, last week we considered Joseph's perspective on everything that occurred to him, how his brothers meant evil, but that, he, that, but that God meant it for good. And so this week, we're going to jump back into the story and look at it from a different perspective. We're going to look at things from Jacob's perspective. And even considering that moment that Joseph reveals himself. So if you remember in the Joseph narrative, his brothers sold him into slavery. They, tried to, they wanted to kill him, but they decided to make a little money uh, instead. And he went into slavery, got thrown into prison. He was brought out of prison because he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And then he, was risen, he rose into power in Egypt, and he became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Everyone just did exactly what he said. He was the, essentially functioning as the king, as the pharaoh was kind of the figurehead of things. And Joseph's brothers then come to him begging for mercy, begging for food. And so Joseph provides food for them. But after uh, many back and forths between his brothers and him, he decides that his brothers are worthy of being forgiven. And so he looks at them and they don't recognize who he is. They've been dealing with Joseph for years now and they don't recognize who he is. And he finally says, I am Joseph. But then that's not all he says. You would think that that's all he says, but what does he say? In Genesis chapter 45, he says, I am Joseph, is my father alive? All one breath. And I am Joseph, is my father alive? He cares deeply 
about his father and is ready to be reunited with his father. And so what happens is that his brothers go home, uh, back to Israel, and they disclose to Jacob, his father, that Joseph is indeed alive. He is alive. And so Jacob, he doesn't want to go down to Egypt. He sent his sons down to Egypt twice now because he didn't want to go down there. He's an old man. He's not sure if he'll make the journey. But he says this. He says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And at this moment, you realize that Jacob is already preparing for death. Whenever people start saying, I'm going to do this kind of small thing, I'm going to make this trip before I die, you know that he's preparing himself for death. And then whenever they are reunited, Joseph, you know, he gets his chariots ready, he rides out and he meets Jacob out there in Egypt, and they're reunited, they weep together, and Jacob says in in chapter 46, verse 30, he says, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Jacob is ready to welcome death. He's lived a long time, and he's ready for that day. And so then there's like basically two things that Jacob does over the next several chapters, okay? He has like two priorities that happen. After he's reintroduced to Joseph, he has like two priorities that he makes really clear before he dies. And the first priority is this, and it feels like an odd one, but he wants to make absolute certain sure that he is not buried in Egypt, but they carry his dead body back to to Israel. He's like, do not bury me here. He says it multiple times, do not bury me here. Okay, it's very insistent. Do not bury me here. Take me back to Israel, which is just curious. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And the second thing that he does before he dies is he wants to speak his final words, the words of blessing to his children. And so he gathers them all around and he speaks words of blessing, maybe a little bit of cursing, uh, to his children. This is Jacob after all. He's not, I don't know if you've been with us this whole time, he's like not the greatest dude that's ever lived. Um, so that's, that's the two priorities that Jacob has. And I think that these two priorities can teach us two principles as we prepare to die. Two principles in preparation for death, which could come at any moment. And the first one, it's kind of weird. He's just really adamant that he doesn't want to be buried in, in Egypt, uh, but that he wants his body moved back to the promised land. He even does the whole, hey, stick your hand under my thigh trick. Uh, this is something that we've seen other uh, patriarchs do, and it's a way to make sure that someone swears to them. So when Abraham is making his servant swear that he'll go find his son Isaac a wife, what does he say? He says, hey, servant, come here. Stick your hand under my thigh, which just feels really weird, but it's one of the ways that they would make people swear. And so as he stuck his hand under his thigh, he would swear that he would go find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. And here, uh, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, makes Joseph swear by sticking his hand under his thigh that he will not bury him in Egypt. I mean, it's like, why does he care? What does it matter? I mean, he's going to be dead. Like, does it matter that that he gets buried there? I know that some people get weird. Maybe you have like a, a family member somewhere along the way that's really weird about where they get buried. Does anybody have a family member who's already got like a burial spot picked out? All right, we, we all know these people, okay? Um, it's a weird thing. Um, I don't have a burial spot picked out, but you know, it shows that you're starting to think about things, you know? Um, that's, that doesn't seem like what's happening here, though. It's not just Jacob being an old dude, okay? Like maybe old people just start thinking about this type of thing. That's not... 
exactly what's happening. And one of the reasons why we know it's not exactly what's happening is because Joseph does the exact same thing. When Joseph gets to the end of his life, at the end of chapter 50, what does he say? He's, he looks at his brothers and he says, brothers, I need you to swear to me that you will not bury me in Egypt. Jacob, of all people, he should welcome being buried in Egypt. Jacob lives, or Joseph, excuse me. Joseph lives, it says that he lives 110 years. How long did he live in Israel? 17 and then he's sold into slavery, and he's moved into Egypt. And then he reigns as a king in Egypt for over 70 years. 80 years he reigns. 78, something like that. Of anyone, he should welcome being buried in Egypt. There are people in Egypt that know him. But instead, what does he say? He says, my brothers, bury me in Israel. Why do they want to be buried in the promised land like that? Why are they so obsessed with it? Actually, we do learn in, in Exodus, this is something I kind of had never noticed before uh, until this week. His brothers do it. 400 years later, during the Exodus, the people of God are asking God to let them go out into the wilderness to, to worship God, take them out of slavery, go back to the promised land. And so the 10 plagues come, and then the last one comes, the death of the firstborn child. And they get sent out, and before they go cross the Red Sea, what do they do? They go find old Joseph's bones, because Joseph made them promise. And they carry the, the coffin of Joseph across the Red Sea. It's like one of those things, that it was high enough priority for the people of God to do it, even as Pharaoh and all the armies of Egypt are on their, are on their tail, and they're not sure how they're going to get across the Red Sea. They, they do it, though. They take the coffin of Joseph out of Egypt. Why are Jacob and Joseph so obsessed with where they get buried. I think that the author of Hebrews helps us with this. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read just a, a few verses from there. Hebrews 11. This is called the Hall of Faith, colloquially, and it just kind of records many of the great acts of faith throughout the Old Testament. And they come together, and, and the author of Hebrews kind of tells us that it was all by faith, not by works. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, stick a finger over there in Genesis 46, and then let's look at, at Hebrews 11, starting at verse 13. So what's happened already in Hebrews 11 is that he's already talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's already described um, some of the things that they did by faith, and then this is what he says in accordance to that. They, these... Chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that they don't just have the physical country of Israel in their mind as they're going back to the land of Israel, but they're thinking about the heavenly promised land that they are to one day inherit. And so they want to go back to the promised land symbolically because they are so ready to inherit the kingdom 
of God. And I think that this all points to our first principle, which is this. In light of death, we long for the promised land of God. In light, I have two principles for us as we consider death. First, in light of death, we long for the promised land of God. Back in 1962, there was a really famous evangelism method that swept the country and even swept the world. And this was called evangelism explosion. Anybody familiar with evangelism explosion? You will be in a moment. Hold on. It became extremely influential and popular. They would practice sharing the gospel of Jesus by starting with two questions. And these are, once I read these, you're going to be like, oh, that. All right. The first question they would ask is, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you can say that you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? And the second question they would ask is, suppose that you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, friends, these are great questions that would not work at all anymore. If you went out into Somerville and asked these questions of people, you would get some really interesting responses. People probably, maybe you get a couple people that are angry with you, but for the most part, people are going to be very polite and tell you that they are a, a polite atheist and that they do not believe in heaven. You know, the idea that heaven is presupposed is gone. That is gone from our culture for the most part. But then when you look at the statistics, is it though? Because 70, I think that, um, I looked this up, that Pew has done the research, and 73% of U.S. adults believe in life after death. Maybe those stats are a bit swayed in our own community. Maybe not as many people believe in life after death in our community. But I guarantee you it's more than what you realize. Uh, when you look a, a bit more at the statistics, some of them are a little surprising. Only 92% of Christians believe in life after death, which really makes me question what they're defining as Christian. Uh, it seems like a big part of it. I don't know. Um, 3% of atheists believe in life after death, which is interesting. 26% of agnostics. But then this is a stat that I thought was, was really helpful. 50% of those who claim no religion at all still believe in heaven. 50% of those who claim no religion at all still believe in heaven. And when it comes to modern belief about heaven, what we actually find is that modern belief about heaven is really similar to ancient Egyptian belief about heaven. Now, I am no expert on ancient Egyptian afterlife views. I'm doing ministry in a place where Harvard is in our backyard. One of you probably is an expert on ancient Egyptian afterlife views, but I did a Google search, okay? And I watched the Disney Plus TV show, Moon Knight. And so I'm well prepared to speak about these things. The ancient Egyptians, from what I can tell, believed that after you died, that you would move on to an afterlife. And in that afterlife, your heart would be weighed against that of a magic feather. And if you lived a good enough life that, you could progress, that your heart outweighed the magic feather, you could progress into the afterlife, which is an eternal disembodied existence. Which honestly sounds a lot like modern views of heaven. Which is, if you, after you die, you go and you stand on a scale with you on one side and Adolf Hitler on the other, and as long as you're a better person than Hitler, you get to move on into 
eternal disembodied existence. This is the way that many of our neighbors and friends think about heaven. But this is a lot different than the way that the Hebrews believed in the afterlife and from what Christians believe in the afterlife. First of all, our hope is not just in an afterlife. Our hope is in a real life, a resurrected real life. We actually believe that we will have bodies throughout all of eternity, that we will come back to life and live a life of meaning and substance after death, that we will go to be with God in heaven for a short amount of time, but then one day he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth and that we will live with God forever in those new heavens and new earth. And so our hope is not just in an afterlife, but in a resurrected life. And with this understanding of resurrection from a Hebrew perspective and from a Christian perspective, it starts to make a little bit more sense of why Jacob might have wanted his bones to be moved back to the promised land. He wants to live in that promised land throughout eternity. Additionally, a a biblical understanding of heaven says that you cannot earn your way in. No matter how good you are, you're never going to measure up. If you took Jacob and you took his heart out and you put it against that magic feather, the magic feather wins every single time. Okay, Jacob, not a great person. He was a scoundrel. He lied. He cheated his way through life. He trusted in God. God forgave him. At times he was faithful. At times he really wasn't. And so if perfection is what's expected to get into heaven, no way he's getting into heaven. And so Christians, along with the Hebrews, know that it's by God's grace, through faith, through Christ, that we are promised into resurrection life. It is our only hope that we cannot earn our way into this thing. We can't live a good enough life, contrary to the way that our neighbors might think about it. When Jacob goes before Pharaoh in Egypt, in chapter 47, verse 4, Jacob describes his years. He says, few and evil have been my days, of the, have been the days of the years of my life. Jacob understands that it's only by God's grace that he is to obtain life after death. And so with that second question, if God were to say to me, why should I let you into my heaven? My only response to that would be like, you shouldn't. I don't deserve it, but I trust in Christ. He's paid the penalty for my son. Your son hung on the cross so that I might know life, and he was resurrected, and I know him. I'm with this guy. It's like trying to get into one of those exclusive bars, and it's like, I'm with this guy. He's going to let me in. He's going to help me get in. He's the cool one. I'm just the sidekick. Can I come in with him? Yes, you can. Gates are open. You're united with Christ through faith, through grace alone. A biblical understanding of the eternal life also starts the moment that you meet Jesus. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it's not just afterlife, but it's eternal life, and eternal life starts the moment you meet Jesus. You're born again into eternal life. The Gospel of Matthew 29 times mentions the kingdom of God Very few of those are actually talking about the new creation or are actually talking about afterlife. It starts today. The moment you meet Christ, eternal life begins. And so church, at the end of your life, you'll want to think about heaven more. And I know right now, this is not top of mind for most of us in here. But if I don't teach you these things today, you're not going to have them to cherish when you need them. But also, I think that the more that you think about these eternal things, it shapes how you live today. 
Listen to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christian brothers and sisters, when we consider the fact that we're to die and to live throughout eternity with God, suddenly the brand of car that you drive matters a whole lot less. Life just changes perspectives when we think about these eternal issues. After Jacob and Joseph swear to make them, uh, to make sure, he's, after Jacob has Joseph swear to make sure he's not buried in Egypt, the story shifts, and he spends the, the rest of the story trying to find a way to talk to his sons in his final days. So let's look at these final words of Jacob to his sons. Point number two, principle number two, is this. In light of death, consider the legacy that you are leaving. In light of death, Consider the legacy that you are leaving. Genesis chapter 48, it deals with Jacob's final words to Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then Genesis 49 is the the, uh, recording of Jacob's final words to his 12 sons. With Joseph's sons, this is an interesting story. I'm going to go through it very briefly and then we'll conclude um, uh, after we, we get through this. The... With Jacob's two son, with Jacob, he meets, he's growing old, and actually word comes to Joseph that your father is ill. Surprisingly, this is the first time that illness is mentioned in the entire Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 48. And so Joseph knows that his father is about to die, and um, he gathers his two sons, Ephraim and uh, Manasseh, and they go to Jacob to receive a blessing. He wants them to receive a blessing. Now, Jacob, at this point, he is going blind. He can't see must be a hereditary condition because this happened also to his brother, his father, Isaac. And Joseph comes and Jacob can't even recognize him. He says, who are these? And Joseph says, these are my two sons. And then what he does is he leads them up and he, he organizes them so that the older is in arm reach of Jacob's right hand and the younger is within arm reach of Jacob's left hand. And he does this intentionally because when you're blessed by the right hand, it signifies that you are the older, that you're worthy of double portion, that you carry on the, the, the favored son role. But then as Jacob brings them to his father, as Joseph brings his two sons to his father, Joseph says, or sorry, I'm getting these names mixed up a lot, I'm sorry. Jacob says to Joseph, I adopt these two as my own, which is amazing. And what he's basically saying is, Joseph, you get double portion because I'm adopting your own sons as my sons so they each get a full inheritance. And then as Joseph brings his sons to Jacob, Jacob pulls a one final, one final Jacob trickery moment. He goes, boop. He just crosses his arms and he blesses them. And Joseph's like, dad, <laughs> no. This one's the older one. This one's the younger one. I know you can't see. And Jacob, he just says, I know, my son, I know. What does this remind us of? But Jacob's own blessing, right? When Jacob came to his father Isaac 
Isaac was going blind, and Jacob tricked his father into giving him the birthright, even though he was the younger of his, two, of his brother, him and Esau. And now we see Jacob continuing this tradition that we see throughout all of Genesis, which is the younger brother is often favored. And what this is teaching us, this is one of the major themes of all of Genesis, is that the younger brother is favored. And what that means is that you cannot earn God's salvation through what you can accomplish, as we've already discussed, through what you can earn, nor can you earn it through birthright, which was a big thing in these days and age. When you would be born first, you would earn something by birthright. And what it's saying is no one can come to God by the will of a parent, by the act of good works, or by birthright. You must be born again and chosen by God. He loves to use the foolish things in the world to bring him glory. He loves to give his gift of grace, and that is the only way that you can receive it, is as a gift. Jacob's crossed hands remind us that God shows grace to undeserving people. And this reminds us, Jacob's crossed hands remind us of the cross of Christ, where he gives grace to undeserving people, where sinners receive the blessing of God. Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. He did this to pay the penalty for our sins and to conquer death itself so that we might find salvation and forgiveness in his completed work on our behalf. After this, chapter 49, Jacob gathers all of his sons, and this is what he says. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. He doesn't say gather yourselves together so that I may offer you a blessing, even though the oftentimes the the heading that you know, we've added to help people understand the Bible, it says Jacob blesses his sons. No, he's not offering a blessing to all of them because that's how Jacob is. They, all of his sons gather and he says, Reuben, you slept with my wife. I don't like you. Next, Simeon, come on with Levi. You guys murdered a bunch of people. I don't like you guys either. That's basically the way it kind of it goes. And then he gets to Judah, and he offers this, uh, this, I mean, it just changes a lot as he gets to Jacob, uh, as he gets to Judah, and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so he offers this prophecy that says that Judah is going to carry on the line uh, of promise and a blessing. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible. King David comes from the line of Judah, and then who else comes but Jesus himself from the line of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so this is a, a blessing that he offers to Judah. As we consider, I'm not going to go through all the sons because there's, there's a lot of details here, but as we, as we consider death, and Jacob offering his legacy to his children, his final words to his children. I just want to challenge us. This, I had emotional time to the Lord considering this this week. This was a difficult portion of a sermon to write, probably one of the most difficult that I can remember. What will you be remembered for? Consider your legacy. What would you be remembered for? What would you leave as your final words? What do you need to put in order? 
You know, when I went on sabbatical a couple years ago, I made a Fletcher sabbatical cheat sheet, uh, which was a message that I wrote to all the church leaders, basically telling them exactly what to do while I'm not here for over a month. And if you had to leave final words to people, what would those final words be? Your words are limited. If you died tomorrow, what would your coworkers say about you? What would your family say about you? What would they say you value? What can they tell you value? What would your family say? Your spouse, your parents, siblings, nieces, and nephews. And most importantly, what would your children, or if you don't have children, what, if you plan to have children, what would your children say about you? Because oftentimes, those are relationships that really could use more time and conversations, my friends. Start, you have to start when they're young. I, we have young parents at our church. I'm just going to give you a quick encouragement. If you plan to have kids one day, let me just give you this quick encouragement. You can't act like you don't want to be with your young toddler and, and then can't act like you don't want to be with your preschooler and your elementary schooler. And then all of a sudden when they're 16, just expect them to want to spend a lot of time with you. You have to invest in that relationship from the time they're very young. And so what would your children say about are your values? Are you leaving a spiritual legacy in the life of your children? Are you leaving a spiritual legacy in people that you're pouring into? Are you leaving a mark for the kingdom of God? Does your life reflect what you believe about eternity? And friends, let me ask you this. What do you want to be remembered for? If the reality doesn't match up to what you want to be remembered for, today is the day to start making those changes. How does it compare with the reality of the legacy that you have created? What do you want them to write on your tombstone or on your obituary? Here lies a man who loved his career until the end. He owned a Tesla, but he never kicked a puppy. That's all that's going to be able to be written of many of us. If you're lucky enough to have a Tesla. (laughs) Friends, what do you want to be remembered for? I'll tell you what I want to be remembered for. And this was a powerful one. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you write this, church, I hope that you can write this on my tombstone. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight of faith. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Is this true of you? Is this true? Is this where you're at? If not, I have a strong word for you. It's repent. Change. This life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last, is the famous rhyme. And I encourage you to live your life with the end in view every single day, that it's never too late, that today is the day to start pouring out your life like a drink offering before the Lord, 
as we close, I want to give you two examples of this from two of my biggest influences. First, um, and this is a, a lengthier quote, uh, comes from David Powelson, a Christian counselor and author, uh, someone I never met in person. I did get the opportunity to speak to him very briefly on Zoom once. And uh, his teaching had such a huge impact on my life. I think that if you look at who has had the most influence, he would easily be near the top for me. He died of pancreatic cancer just a few years ago. It's the same cancer that killed Tim Keller. Um, and he wrote his final letter during his last days, and I'm just going to share some portions of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's kind of long. But here's what he says as he's facing death. Um, he says, six months ago, I was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. As I write, I'm facing the real possibility of my own death. By God's grace, I've been able to continue working, yet much of my work is bittersweet. I'm handing off responsibilities and jobs to others. I am making... I am involved in making plans for the future that I'm not likely to be a part of here on earth. Our, our family continues to grow with grandchildren. I wonder if I will be here to meet my next grandchild. Those I love are also in the midst of this battle with me. My wife, children, grandchildren, extended family, friends, friends at work. We are all confronted with the evil of death and illness. In the midst of this battle, the weapons Christ gives sustain and equip us to battle against the last enemy, the death itself. Today I'm called to fight this final battle with Jesus as my armor and his spirit as my strength. The world tells us that medicine is our only hope. We don't want to get fixated on finding a cure. We want to be wise, so we pray. We armor ourselves with the truth that the Lord is near and will be our good shepherd. We take up the sword of the spirit and remember Jesus' words. That's sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And ask for help one day at a time. I'm staring death in, in its face. Instead of my faith failing, the promise of a new heart holds true. God is still shining into the darkness of my heart to give me the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The reality of death has made the truth of God's word come alive to me. I am now living out the end of 2 Corinthians 4 which says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary reflection is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, transparent, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What a privilege it has been for me to serve my faithful Savior these years. What a privilege it has been to walk with others in need. What a joy it will be to see him face to face. And the beautiful final words by a man who lived his life as a drink offering to the Lord. And with one final quote, I've been on a Narnia kick, so I just thought I would round it off, okay? Uh, this is the third week in a row with extended Narnia quote. Um, at the very end of the last book, The Last Battle, we're given a picture of new Narnia, which reflects the new heavens and the new earth that we long for. And here's what it says. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you, if you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed it up, who summed up what everyone was feeling. 
He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Church, we, we long for that day and we prepare for it each and every, remembering what our priorities are and what they should be. We reconsider our life. We end today with a communion meal, which Jesus has told us to do until he returns. And we long for that day. And so the way that the communion represents Christ's body being broken for us and his blood being shed for us is a physical way that we are reminded of what Jesus has done for us. So church, let's stand as we prepare to come to the table and to worship God together. Father, we pray that we will live with the end in view. That you would give us a sense of what it means to not just live but to die and how we can live our life being poured out as a drink offering so that we might see you one day face to face. God, I pray that those in here would fight the good fight, that they'd finish the race, that they'd keep the faith so that they might receive the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to each of us because we have longed and loved his appearing. God, as we prepare this communion meal, I pray for anyone who isn't sure where, what's happening after they die, would they come to you today and receive the mercy and forgiveness for their souls that they need? Would you remake them into the image of Christ? And in this week, pray in Christ's name. Amen.